0: Hey, deserving listeners, a lot of you have been sending me emails about grief, and so I thought I would answer those emails in today's episode. This is going to be an episode just for patrons of the podcast. A lot of these emails are from patrons. Also, I'm going to be going into the a lot of the theory. I'm going to be talking about Freud and Melanie Klein, grief work, dual process, five stages of grief, and all the science thereof. Spoiler alert, the five stages of grief um, is BS. I'm going to talk about complicated grief, the, uh, the DSM. Um, I'm, I, I just want to kind of, yeah, some of you know I've, I've been writing a book about grief. I'm sure I'm never going to finish it. And I thought I'd just sort of sprinkle it in in various different episodes, and I thought I'd do that in this episode. So I'm going to talk about, you know, pretty briefly the history of grief therapy and and Freud and then I'm going to answer emails. So let's get into it. If you're not a patron of the podcast and you want to hear this episode, you have to become a patron by going to patreon.com. When you become a patron of the podcast, you'll get access to this episode along with hundreds of other episodes that are only available to patrons. Also, everyone should know that a por- portion of your monthly pledge goes towards various charities that, that we support, including scholarships and, and, and other things. So become a patron. Do it now. Be one of us. Hey, Deserving Listeners. As you know, I'm constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. One of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp.com. So if you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to BetterHelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the slash Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it helps us out. I get a lot of emails from you saying that you're looking for a therapist. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist. But I know it can be really hard to find a good one to work with. Like I said, one of the options available to try is BetterHelp.com Kirk. And you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide, which is amazing. I've been told that you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message with your counselor anytime. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. And I've been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy. So go to BetterHelp.com slash Kirk to get 10% off your first month of therapy today. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone, Patrons. This first email, anonymous patron, she writes, I think we live in a death, rejection, and grief-averse society that is only making our collective mental health worse. This got me thinking about what Freud and Klein wrote about, grieving, about the grieving process. I would love to hear your thoughts on this yeah, so let's you know let's let's talk about Freud. Uh, in my book on grief, my manuscript, my rough draft, there's a considerable amount of space dedicated to Freud, and I thought I would summarize it here. So let's go back to the beginning with Sigmund Freud. 1893, so late 19th century. Freud was a young fella. And he and his mentor or colleague, Joseph Breuer, they're both physicians. And they were treating this patient that they called Anna O. Anna and then O, you know, O period uh, in this book called Studies in Hysteria. This is the first book by Freud. I believe, pretty sure. Uh 95% sure of that. <laughs> but Anna O was a nickname for a real person named Bertha Pappenheim. Bertha suffered from grief of her father who was dying. Uh he the father had recently become known to be terminally ill and his daughter whom was very close to her close to him Bertha the daughter Uh, she began to have all these mysterious physical symptoms and what we might consider to be psychological symptoms today, but they didn't really see it that way at the time. And so Breuer, Joseph Breuer, Freud's uh, mentor or colleague, Joseph Breuer was Anna O. or Bertha Pappenheim's doctor. And back then in Austria, they did a lot of home visits, if not entirely. And so... Joseph Breuer is going to the house, and he is trying to help her out, and he's doing all the various things that one could do in 1893, which wasn't very much. But one of the things that uh, they jo, b- both Freud and Breuer were thinking about was that, you know, maybe there's this thing called psychology, and maybe there's this thing called talking to people. And, of course, today, we're just like, well, of course, yeah, there, there's psychological symptoms. Of course, you have talk therapy. It's it's just this known thing. At this point in time, that, in essence, did not exist. When you had a physical ailment, it was just assumed that there was some physical disease. When someone was depressed, it was assumed there was some physical problem. Or the alternative, which was also a prevalent idea, is that there was something wrong with your soul, that you had to go to church and pray for something in order to cure yourself of the so-called mental issue. There was no s- sense. There was there was little bubblings here and there, but uh, in terms of the philosophy that we all know and love today. But at the time, no. And so Freud and Breuer were treating Bertha Pappenheim, and they're they're like, huh, she doesn't really seem to be responding to the, to these other things. I wonder if this might be a good case study for treating her with what we believe might help people which is talking to them. And Freud hadn't really developed his theory of the unconscious and all this other stuff. I mean he had certain, you know, proto ideas about it, but but and in a sense you could consider Bertha Pappenheim to be a co-author on the book because as Breuer was treating Bertha Pappenheim, the the two of them would collaborate a lot. On what would help her she she would talk about her feelings of grief about her father and her symptoms would go down she had various different symptoms like she uh i can't remember all the symptoms they 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 uh diagnosed her with hysteria back then listen to my whole deep dive on hysteria Uh, and uh at the time hysteria was sort of a grab bag in terms of the way we would see it today. It it includes like so many different disorders. It seems to be like depression, conversions, uh, you know, somatic issues, anxiety, PTSD. It all seems to be kind of lumped into one, which makes sense because at the time they didn't have any diagnostic system or research or literature on any of this stuff. So was, they were just making it up as they were going along. But anyway, so... Uh, Joseph Breuer is, is working with her and Freud is talking with Breuer outside of their work and Bertha is experiencing Joseph Breuer's talk therapy and she began to push Joseph Breuer to listen to her more. She she would say, you know what, I think the best thing you're doing with me right now that really seems to help with my symptoms is and this is all, you know, in their language, but translated into English, they labeled it as the talk. She labeled it as the talking cure. So she's really suffering, and it's hard to it's hard to know what she was actually suffering from at the time, but she clearly was suffering from grief, maybe in addition to other things. But it's very sad and very upset. And when Joseph Broder would come to the house and talk with her and treat her with, you know, medical things. He was trying all these very, very different things, and she was like, "You know, I really like it when we, you just let me talk. You just, you just listen." And she said, "You know, I, f- I feel like this is the talking cure, which is totally revolutionary at the time. Of course, today, we just, of course, talking helps people. Therapy helps people. But back then, again, just completely foreign idea. It would have been, it was, and it was laughable for decades after Freud was talking about this. She also called it chimney sweeping." you know, the, this metaphor of trying to sweep out her brain, if you will. And Breuer would listen to her and say, oh, okay, so it seems like it helps to talk about things. And her, you know, her symptoms seem to go down. And uh, by the way, I uh, there's a whole interesting story between Breuer and Freud and Bertha. And I've, I've talked about it in other episodes. But anyway, so just know that that's where Freud was first starting to observe uh, what I would call grief. Now, later clinicians would attempt to diagnose her within our current you know, way of, of thinking, whether it's physicians or uh, psychologically minded people. And so some people would say, ah, it kind of looks like she had encephalitis. And other people are saying, "Ah, I think she might have had borderline, or I think she might have had schizophrenia. It's really hard to tell, because her symptoms seem to be all over the place. But to me, it seems like she could have been suffering from, at least in part, if not entirely, from complicated grief, which I'll go into later. Um, But getting back to Freud, so a couple decades later, uh, Freud publishes one of his seminal works called Mourning and Melancholia, this is published in 1917. So in this book, he talks about the difference between mourning and melancholia. So it's called mourning and melancholia. So mourning, he defined as, the, in, in the way that I would frame it, in the way that a lot of contemporary grief researchers would frame it, is that Freud was referring to mourning as normal grief, the, the normal process of mourning that which involves things that I'll get into in a second. And then melancholia, he used that label for people that were suffering from what we might call complicated grief or prolonged grief which I'll get into in a second later as well. So, uh, Freud uh, had broken away from Breuer. Breuer actually to some extent just getting back to Anna O and uh, you know, AKA Bertha Pappenheim. Joseph Breuer uh, worked very intensely with with Bertha and had tremendous countertransference and really cared about Bertha and was very stressed out about working with her because her symptoms came and, and went and came and went and seemed to increase over time. And and for Joseph Breuer, you could consider him to be the founder of all psychotherapy, but he was so you could say broken by the counter-transference of working with Bertha that he dropped out of it altogether. And, and Freud just said, hey, you know, you and me, buddy, we're in this together. And uh, Joseph Breyer's like, no, I, I can't do this. And, and my wife doesn't want me to do it because she sees me. She sees how stressed out I am. So Joseph Breuer just went back to regular, uh, you know, uh, medical work. And Freud said, okay, I guess I'm on my own. And it, incidentally, this really affected Freud because for his entire uh, career, Freud would teach his, his students that you really have to work on your countertransference transference because he saw how devastating it could be to a clinician, that it could cause someone to drop out of the profession altogether. And so... You know, that should give you some ideas to why psychoanalysts in general were so uh, tough on themselves when they had countertransference. But anyway, so Morning Melancholia, Freud publishes this 1917, discusses grief. And uh, in this book, he lays out his observations of grief and his and his ideas about what helps for therapy for grief. And his ideas so going back to the original book, I keep jumping all over the place because there's so much to say. Anyway, uh, no, no, I won't do that. I'm just going to stick where I'm at. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Morning, and Melancholia. The ideas of grief in this book proposed by Freud dominated the field for 80 years, maybe even in today. This is If you've ever heard the phrase grief work, it comes from this book. And so... As with a lot of things that originated completely from Freud's mind, a lot of people just take it for granted. You know, a lot of people are, oh, Freud's so stupid, he talked about penis envy and stuff. And it's like, well, one, you don't really understand penis envy if you're talking about it that way. It's actually a pretty complicated idea. I don't use it, but it's not as laughable as it might seem. And the other thing is, is basically everything within psychotherapy could be argued, originated from him. Now, it, everything has been uh, expanded upon <laughs> in much more detail, but the just the notion of talking to someone to help them originated from Freud and Breuer, and so to call Freud this idiot is one of the dumbest things you could ever say. <laughs> I mean, just like it's so stupid to think of Freud as an idiot. Like wh- And I always say this is like look around the world. You know, uh, talk therapy is most prevalent in the Western world, right? Europe, uh, North America. Why? Because of Freud, because Freud lived in the Western world and the rest of the world in their cultural pockets did not have a Freud and still have not. And so talk therapy, if you live in Seattle, the fact that you can even get a therapist is due to the hard work. And so not only did Freud propose these ideas, but he spent his entire career fighting against the establishment, trying to convince people that psychotherapy was a thing and that the unconscious is a thing and that talking helps people as a thing. So we owe a a huge debt of gratitude to him. And you don't have to ascribe to his idea, but, do not denigrate him. <laughs> Just a complete misunderstanding of history, and all the people that followed in his footsteps. Melanie Klein, uh, we owe you know she was a psychoanalyst. Anyway, point is is that getting back to mourning melancholia. I wonder how many offshoots I'm going to have here. Um, so his theory of grief dominated our world, and here is his theory. So you might have heard of catharsis. Well. There's all these different ideas with catharsis. I'm not going to go in the full detail. But to use that language, Freud said that we cathect or invest. So to cathect is to invest. Cathect, you could almost think of it as attaching things to other things. Like, I'm going to cathect this um, hook to the wall. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm going to attach this hook to this wall. I'm going to cathect. So another way to think about it is investment. So I, I'm going to invest by going to graduate school so that I could become a therapist. So I'm investing time and energy. Anyway, So we cathect libidinal energy. So when you think of libidinal, you think of libido, which, you know, you think of sex. But actually, libidinal energy is is just all of your energy in terms of your mind. So lib- the libido is your your urges, your psychic energy, your, your pleasure energy, these kinds of things. So we cathect or invest our libidinal energy or just our psychic energy into objects. And this is another word that trips people up. Objects are people or things. So when you hear the theory object relations, the better way of of phrasing it should be people relations objects sound like the opposite the opposite of people but think when you hear the word object in psychoanalytic or object relations psychodynamic language it is like the object of a sentence right like i love you well the object of that sentence is you so when you think object relations it's the the object of your libidinal energy so uh, so what Freud believed and what he lays out in Morning Melancholia in 1917, uh, you know, 103 years ago, we invest or cathect our libidinal energy into objects that are important to us. So I am married to my wife and she is a person that is important to me and she is an object of my libidinal energy. She's an object of my psychic my mind energy or my pleasure energy pleasure meaning i like it when she's around i i like to talk to her i like to be with her um you know i like to hold her hand that kind of thing and as i am uh investing that libidinal energy into her uh it just builds up over time okay all right so again we connect libidinal energy in objects that are important to us, right? And uh, into the objects, we invest or collect um, all the memories, thoughts, and sensations associated with the object. So as I live my life with my wife, all these little moments, all the sensations, all the smells, all the, the, the things I hear, the things I see, the things I experience, the things I feel, all these become cathected um, in the object. In, but it's in my mind, right? So in my mind, there's the the object both exists in the real world, but it also exists in my mind. And so in my mind, in my ego, I am cathecting all these associations to the object that I have of my wife in my mind. Right. The more important the person is, the more libidinal energy we invest. And when we lose an object, when we lose a thing, so so the word object we can also apply to things, right? So you could cathect libidinal energy into a political party, or a sports team, or a job, or a city, or a animal, or a stuffed animal, or so you know. We we cathect libidinal energy in all sorts of objects. All right. So when we lose an object, we begin to desperately search for it. And this actually goes back to um, how Darwin saw grief. Freud absolutely knew and studied and really enjoyed uh, Charles Darwin's work and thought of himself as kind of basing his theory on it, even though it might be hard to sense. But one of the connections you see is here, is that both for Darwin and Freud they saw that when we lose an important person to us the first step is to begin to desperately search for it so you'll see animals do this you'll see young children do this when a toddler loses sight you know you you're alone with your toddler and you step out of your, your kids playing with something and you're like, okay, I have a little bit of time. I'm going to go to the bathroom. You go to the bathroom and you just see your kid just wailing, you know, because your kid is playing and then they look up and you're gone. And so they want you back that you they've lost you. And so they might start crawling around looking for you and they're desperately searching for you. Well, animals do this too, right? We can observe this in, in, Other primates or even puppies, you know, I have a, we have a puppy in our house right now. And as, as soon as uh, she realizes that she's alone, she starts to cry. (laughs) And so it seems to be an instinct for social creatures. And so uh, Freud and, and Darwin both saw it this way and connected this to grief, which makes total sense to me. And actually John Bowlby, attachment theorist, also ascribed to this idea makes total sense anyway so Freud Sigmund Freud viewed grief as the pain we feel as we search for the lost attachment uh, you know we the person dies or the person divorces us or the person uh, moves away and the first thing we do is oh my god you know uh, they're they've left me and I I'm trying to search them I can't find them I feel pain and so you could consider it a Evolved pain that we feel Before we were social creatures We would use our pain Centers as a way of Protecting ourselves from Things that were going to hurt us Right So if something was trying to eat Our hand We would feel pain and we'd pull away Something like that right So it's it's a pain is an indication of Something is wrong and you need to do Something about it And when we became social creatures when, you know, our our various ancestors evolved social ways of of dealing with things. It uh, co-opted that pain feeling as a uh, mechanism to get you to do something about something. So when people leave us or when someone dies, we feel that, that same pain. It's the same pain we feel as if we we were having a heart attack, or someone stabbed us. People even say that you know my heart is broken. This kind of thing, and so uh, this is the way Darwin, Freud, mainly Darwin and and Bowlby saw it this way. But anyway, so Freud viewed grief as the pain we feel as we search for the lost attachment, and that decathexis or withdrawal from the ego from the libido. Uh, from a loved object that takes time and energy, so I'm not going to go in the weeds on that one. But so as we as we learn to we have so essentially, <laughs> and I'm not sure if Freud would describe it this way, but the way I interpret it is that as so I'm with my wife and I love her and I want to be with her and I like her and so I'm attaching all these memories and feelings and thoughts to her. I'm I'm having all these experiences that are good, and I'm attaching all those good things to that object in my mind. And you know, I, I haven't, the object really exists, but it also exists in my mind, and I'm attaching all those things. If for if for whatever reason I was to lose her, then uh, I have to somehow either find her, or I have to detach or uninvest all that energy and connection that I had previously made in my mind. So uh, uh, until we, and what Freud saw was until we accept the loss and detach all those things from the love object, then we're going to experience a lot of pain. We're going to experience a lot of difficulty. So in order to decathect or uninvest uh, all those, you know, positive associations from the object in her mind, the griever must invest even more energy or hypercathexis, into the lost attachment by being preoccupied by dreaming about the person, maybe even hallucinating about the person or and other psychic activities before the griever can detach or reinvest in, in new attachments. And if this lack of acceptance is protracted, we will experience melancholia, depression, and a loss of pleasure in life. So remember, he saw that, that mourning was normal. That was the process of hypercathexis, meaning that, so let's say for God forbid, I was somehow to lose my wife. I, the, the mind wants to let go, but in order to let go, it has to hyper-invest or hyper-cathexis, hyper-cathect all these associations. So the the brain is trying to pull away, but for whatever reason, Freud never goes into why. He says, well, why? What's your theory? He just, I don't think he really goes into it, but you, you have to you know, invest a hundred times more than you would normally to really let go of it. So that means that, you have to think about... So that means I, my mind would want to think about her all the time. And my mind would want to remember all the memories. And my mind would want to focus on how painful it was that I wasn't with her. I would dream about her. I might even hallucinate that she's, she's around. People talk about that all the time. You know, I thought I saw my mother. Uh, I, you know, my mother died six months ago. And I, I walked, I came into the kitchen, and I, I saw her at the sink. It, I, I, she was there doing the dishes. And, you know, I rubbed my eyes, and she was gone. I mean, but she was there, man. And so uh, that Freud heard these stories, too, and had this idea of just like, well, you know, I guess what the mind has to do is it has to dive fully in to all those associations that you had with the object. And if you are allowed to do that, then you will be able to decathect, you'll be able to uninvest all those attachments because Freud believed that you had to you had to deassociate all of those things from that person. Like for my wife, I connect to her all the thing all my hopes and dreams of, you know, most of my the meaning of my life or I don't know most, but a lot of the meaning of my life, right? Like the, my future involves her my home involves her my my life involves her and so in order for me to be able to move forward i have to i would have to you know uncouple those things i'd have to say okay there was her but i have a future without her i can have future relationships without her there are going to be other people that are going to be close to me uh, and maybe you know as close as i was to her but During the grief process, you you can't really feel that because all those associations are attached to that one person. And uh, so Freud believed that people will naturally do this, actually, and that actually therapists should stand uh, aside and let there and let clients do this This is actually a very smart thing that Freud observed this is one of the Freud was a genius of observation there are so many things that he observed he would kind of shove it into his kind of odd theory but I mean some of it was odd some of it was genius but there's so many kind of baseline level observations and conclusions that he uh, derived that are just so good and so many people still don't really understand but one of the things that he would talk about was he, he said, you know, grief is normal and that hyper cathexis, that, that total obsession with the loss is normal. And if you let someone do that, they will naturally pull out of it. The problem is, is that some people either for whatever reason, they just they just don't go through that hyper process. And so what needs to happen is you need to do this thing called grief work. So if you've ever heard of the term grief work, it comes from Freud. And there are problems with this model that I'll go into in a second. But mostly it's, it's, a, it's a genius assertion made by him, which is that maybe in, in his world in Vienna and during his time, a lot of people were denying their grief. And so what he found was like a lot of times in psychotherapy, what people need is encouragement to uh, hyper effect, meaning that the psychotherapist should say, how do you feel about the loss? Tell me about the person. Tell me everything that is in your unconscious about this, you know, everything that's in your conscious mind about this person. Free associate about this person. How do you feel? What's going on? What do you think? What are your memories? Tell me a story. All these things were in an effort to do grief work because the person wasn't doing it naturally. And that, for a lot of people, actually can help. But the problem is, is that this was either misinterpreted or interpreted correctly. It's hard to know. It's You just have to wonder what Freud would say if we went, um, what about this? But anyway, a lot of people interpreted this over the years in psychotherapy to mean that our job as therapists is to... Kind of force people to some extent to talk about the loss. Clients will come in and they'll say, "Yeah, I'm really depressed. Yeah, I don't know what's going on." and And then the therapist does an assessment and finds out that their parents died in a car accident two years ago. And the therapist says, "Oh, I you know I bet you this client hasn't really grieved that." all right, so it's my job to force the client to grieve. So the, the client would say, you need to talk about this grief. You need to talk about your pain, about what happened to your parents. And for some clients that will be helpful, but for other clients that won't to, which I'll get into more later, But um, which I, when I get into the dual process. But anyway, uh, so Freud asserted that uh, for many people, pathology will develop if the person... Doesn't do grief work, which is to decathect um, through hyper. So you hypercathect to decathect. You, you hyperthink about in order to stop thinking about, if that makes sense. And in his words, the libido will detach from the lost object and the ego is free once again. And the main thing is, is that the ego is seeking a way to be free from that object such that it can attach to it to other objects that's that was freud's big thing is like it the 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 ego is attached to that object that object is now lost you cannot get it back so you need to detach from that object in your mind and then you need to attach to other objects that, that's what he says you know it's pretty astute if you think about it so freud really normalized the grief reaction um He also extended grief to include other losses besides the death, death of a loved one, which to some extent still is a problem. A lot of people, when they think about grief, they think about death. But I would venture to say that the average grieving process has nothing to do with death and has to do with divorce or breakups or loss of a job or uh, other kinds of things like that. Um, so going down in my notes here. Um, So Freud defined normal grief as including the following symptoms, painful emotions, makes sense, anhedonia, which is the inability to feel pleasure. So we associate this with depression, guilt, low self-esteem and self-reproach. So, you know, how come I didn't say what I should have said to that person or I should have been there when they were dying or something like that? Okay, so I'm summarizing a lot in a short space, but another thing I should mention is that Freud also thought, or he observed, that when we were grieving the loss of a person in particular, we often, if not always, would inc- we would adopt characteristics of the person that we lost in order to retain them. So if someone died close to you who... Really liked anime, and you were just kind of meh about anime. But after the death, you find yourself watching anime all the time. So, uh, for some real life examples of this, for me, I have always kind of been grieving the loss of my um, cultural identity, uh, mainly on my Japanese side, but on my white side as well, but mainly on my Japanese side. I'm fourth generation, which means that my Japanese father doesn't speak Japanese. Um, there's definitely Japanese-American culture in my family. You know, I, For example, <laughs> my Asian brethren would be able to attest to this. Every meal we ate rice, and not just American kind of style rice, but like the Japanese style rice. And not only Japanese style rice, but one brand of rice <laughs> we, we ate so much rice in my house sticky rice you might call it sushi rice that my mom my white mother who adopted all of her cooking habits to the Japanese American thing <laughs> mainly because she didn't really have any cooking habits because my parents uh got married it when they were 19 years old so <laughs> but um so my mom had uh, this from Wajamaya, if you're familiar in the Seattle area. My, there was this giant. We called it a rice dispenser, and it could hold I don't know how many how many pounds of of rice. And every day, well actually every other day, she'd go to this rice dispenser. Think of it like when you go to the grocery store and they have those big. Uh, bulk things where you you put a bag underneath like a bunch of fava beans and you press that lever and all the fava beans come flying out into the into the bag right well we had one of those for rice but it was giant <laughs> and it didn't have any english on it. it had all japanese labels on it but my mom knew what they all meant anyway probably just out of memorization right and then so every twice you know twice uh uh so every other day my mom would go to this thing, a ka chunk, and all this rice would come out and she'd cook it for and there were six people in my family, so and then the, she would uh she would make double and then she'd put half of it in the fridge and we'd have it for leftovers the next day. <laughs> and there are various different ways my mom would sort of incorporate leftover rice. There's a whole there's a whole Asian thing about leftover rice. And the crunchy rice that gets burnt on the side, it's like the Like a lot of people, oh, I burnt my rice. No, to a Japanese American, that's like a delicacy. (laughs) You dip that in some sauce, man, you got got a good snack right there. Anyway, the point is is that I definitely had a connection with my Japanese American culture, but it was always kind of out of reach, a lot of it was, because I grew up with hardly any non-white people. And so my world was like, a Norman Rockwell painting where it was white people and going fishing and frogs and uh, lakes and, you know, jumping off of a dock and uh, climbing trees with, with white kids riding our big wheels and our bikes. And so uh, it didn't, not that Asian Americans didn't do that as well, but my point is, is that if you characterize my childhood, it would it would be very much like a white American experience. Anyway, I, I always wanted a deeper connection with my Japanese heritage and, and just never could really get it. Now, I didn't put a lot of effort into it, but when I was in my 20s, early 30s, I suddenly found myself wanting to watch everything Asian movie-wise. I wanted to watch all the Studio Ghibli stuff. I wanted to watch all the John Woo movies, all the Chow Yun-Fat movies. It's all I wanted to do. And, and I remember when I was watching it, I felt myself being enriched. And so <laughs> to bring it back to my original point here is that Freud and Melanie Klein, by the way, might have seen that as, well, you're mourning the loss of your culture And the way that you're dealing with it is to seek out the art and incorporate that into your soul. Okay. So that's, I don't know if that's a stretch, but a better example is uh, a dear friend of mine. She, uh, her sister died in a tragic uh, car accident when we were in high school. So me and my friend were in high school and uh, her sister dies and And this family was very close. And so my friend was very close to her sister, her older sister. And after the death, my friend, she didn't cry about it. She didn't really even think that much about it. And she thought that there was something wrong with her. And I'll get into more of this in a second as well, about how normal this is. But what what happened was, about a year later, her and I were hanging out. And talking and all of a sudden she starts crying about her sister, this is a year later, and I hugged her and she's crying and crying and crying and crying about her sister and later she told me that that was the first time she'd ever really cried about her sister. She cried many more times later, but it was it was a year after that she started to cry and really feel the feelings, which I'll get more in a second but my point is is that she my friend was so if there's a spectrum from a goody two shoes and a non-goody two shoes, like a a rebel. So say, you know, a compliant daughter and a rebel daughter, my friend was a very compliant daughter. And the daughter who died, her old you know, my friend's older sister, was a very rebel daughter. Not terribly, but you know, on that side of the spectrum. And after the death of her sister, my very goody-two-shoes friend be- very much became more of a rebel, and she would attest to this that it was because of her sister's death that she started to incorporate elements of her sister, and the the fantasy, however functional it is, depending on the situation, is that by incorporating lost elements of individual I actually don't have to lose that person right so Freud actually observed this and 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 you know wrote about it Melanie klein comes along uh, another person from Austria and she was known for object relations uh, she emigrated to Britain she was a, a psychoanalyst object relations person she wrote in nineteen forty that she agreed with Freud's assertion that we, she she had a whole thing on grief, there's all sorts of things. But one of the things that she observed was that we do, in fact, will, you know, we will incorporate elements of these other people. Um, there's various different terms for interjection, um, or internalization, there's all these different terms for it. But anyway, but she also uh, observed in people as they were going through grief, that early childhood difficulties would reemerge during grief. So, if, for example, you, you know, your dog dies and you're very sad about it naturally. Well, if you have difficulties from your early childhood, there's a good chance that those difficulties will reemerge during your, during your grief uh, of your dog. So let's say that you were made to feel very unsafe when you were three years old. Well, the death of your dog might cause you, in a strange way, to, your, to yourself at the time, to feel very unsafe. Things like that. Or when you're very young, you're violated in some way. And then your grandmother dies, and that might cause you to feel violated again. So that's what Melanie Klein observed. Now, I would say that that's not universal, but it certainly can happen for sure. All right. So, that's a brief synopsis of Sigmund Freud and Melanie Klein, particularly Freud, that I am talking about in response to anonymous patron's email. Um I haven't even got to the emailed questions yet. <laughs> but uh yeah, so let's go into complicated grief cuz I you know, went into that a little bit in detail. Um uh, so there are many different proposals of how to describe complicated grief. Uh, the uh, Here's the thing. So most clinicians and researchers agree that who work in the field of grief, that we need some label for people that seem to cross a threshold into what we might call pathological grief, meaning that the grief for some reason or another is not. Uh, taking the normal trajectory that it normally will. So the the problem is how do you differentiate between normal grief and pathological grief or complicated. The, there's a lot of different terms proposed in the literature. Some will say prolonged grief. I don't like that one because that uh, intimates that there's a there's a time threshold and often they have that in the description. And I don't like that because it's impossible to put a time limit on what would be normal grief, because for some grief, for some losses, the grief feelings will last the rest of your life, and that is normal. So I don't like the prolonged label, but that's one of the most prevalent ones. Others are pathological grief. People don't like that one because it sounds too harsh. But complicated grief is the one that I like the most, because complicated makes it Uh, It doesn't put a time limit on it, and it doesn't, it's not super pathologizing, the word complicated. And it, uh, I think, describes it pretty well that your grief was, you know, happening, and then something complicated that grief to make it a problem. So, you know, I kind of like that word. And there are many different proposals put forth by people. It was almost included in the DSM-5. I believe it's in one of the ending chapters as, as like, well, we still need to do more research on this. But uh, it was almost included DSM-5. I wish it was. But anyway, so complicated grief. There are many different proposals about what the criteria should be. And I'm just going to provide one because, I don't know, it just seems to be the, the best one, kind of. Reynolds, Stack, and Howell at 2011 proposed the following criteria for complicated grief. So they follow the DSM language. So criterion A is that the person has been bereaved for at least six months. So, right away, we have a problem because bereavement is uh, usually a reference to someone who has died in your life, right? And complicated grief can involve any kind of loss. And so, to me, I, this is a problem right away, but, you know, it's trying to get into the DSM, so they really usually try to limit there. But anyway, so. A, the person has been bereaved for at least six months. So right away, again, you have this time span thing. But I think that what they're saying, and, and a lot of the proposals have these sorts of criteria criteria because it's saying like, well, you know, in the first six months after a loss, it, it's normal to have a lot of difficult emotions during that time. So you, you got to be at least six months out for us to know for us to even look at this problem, okay. But that's that's also a problem, because let's say you're three months after the loss, but your grief is already complicated and already causing massive problems. Eh, you know, it's really a hard thing to draw a line with, right? You know, with major depressive disorder, this is not a difficult thing to draw a line with. There are people who have major depressive disorder. And it is obvious that they suffer from a very common issue. And we're not wondering, "Hmm, I wonder if this is just normal sadness. You know, I'm talking about not grief, just not related to grief, just like completely separated from grief, just like major depressive disorder, or, uh, you know, OCD. When people suffer from actual OCD, You're not wondering, hmm, I wonder if this is just normal obsessiveness. No, there's no doubt in anyone's mind. (laughs) Someone who suffers from classic OCD or classic major depression, there's no doubt this is not normal. This is not what you would expect from the normal range of someone's life. With complicated grief and normal grief, the line between those two things, it gets real hard. The the main problem is that Every loss is of different intensity. So if you lost your mother and she died, well, okay, that's a close relationship. But how old was your mother? Were you able to say goodbye? What were your feelings with your mother? Were they complicated to begin with? Was she the only friend you had in your life? Did she die suddenly or was it kind of expected? Was there a, a you know a progression of illnesses that you began to wonder, oh, I wonder if she's going to die soon? Or did she just suddenly die of a heart attack in the middle of the night? And Or did she die violently, you know, if she was murdered or something? Well, there's just so many different variations on even when we just look at your mother dying, that would make the grief process different, right? So it's so hard to delineate, you know, if, if, for example, your mother was your best friend your entire life and you talk to her every day and uh, she died violently and very suddenly at the age of 55, which is for most people way too young. And uh, and you don't really have that many other attachments in your life, it wouldn't be unusual for you to be crying at least once a day for the next 10 years of your life. So who's to put a line on that, right? That, that, that's why it just gets so strange. But I, I think that it is helpful to try to delineate between uh, complicated grief and otherwise, because I think it helps with treatment. You know, if someone is having normal grief, then you you just you just help the grieving process, which I'll get into in a second. But if it's uh, complicated grief, then you you're going to be looking for what's getting in the way of the grief process happening, or or what other issues are making the grief more difficult. Like, is there actual depression? Anyway, so let's go into criterion B: at least one of the following symptoms. Of persistent, intense, acute grief has been present for a period longer than is expected by others in the person's social or cultural environment. So, there are four different um, symptoms that I am going to list out here. And according to this, uh, you know, proposal by Reynolds, Stack, and Howell in two thousand eleven, um, at least one of these needs to be present. But listen to, but listen to how I said that. At least one of the following symptoms of persistent, intense, acute grief. Has been present for a period, has been present for a period longer than is expected by others. So just look at that 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 phrasing. So you know you have gr- you have grief symptoms, you know that are persistent and intense for a period longer than is expected by others. What in the world does that mean, <laughs> right? Especially when you live in a culture, as was said by anonymous patron, that will pathologize grief anyway. So it gets real weird. Okay. But I don't think it's a bad thing to at least try to identify. Anyway, so these four things need to be present for longer than is expected by others. Number one is persistent intense longing. Two, frequent intense feelings of loneliness or that life is empty or meaningless without the person who died. Three, recurrent thoughts that it is unfair, meaningless, or unbearable to have to live without that person. Number four, frequent preoccupied thoughts about the person who died. So according to this definition, these experiences are normal, uh, right after the loss. But if the if they last longer than is expected by others, then we're looking at meeting criterion B. So again, persistent intense longing for the person, Frequent intense feelings of loneliness or that life is meaningless without that person, recurrent thoughts that life is unfair, meaningless, or unbearable to have to live without that person, and frequent preoccupying thoughts about the person who who has died. So we could agree, I think, that say – and again, it has to be at least six months. So let's say this is 18 months after someone's spouse died and they have – persistent, intense longing for the person who has has died. We would expect to see that in the first six months for sure. But if we're seeing that 18 months later, again, persistent and intense, not that it just happens once a week, but it's every day or almost every day and intense, just total preoccupation with the fact that the person is gone and total meaninglessness about one's life, because the person is gone. That to me, I would say constitutes or uh, justifies a pathological label. Um, All right, so criterion C, and pathological meaning not blaming the victim, but just saying, "Uh Oh, this person seems to be having a problem with with grief. Criterion C, uh, meaning that we need to help them. Criterion C, is at least two of the following symptoms have been present for at least a month. So one, frequent troubling rumination about the circumstances or the consequences of the death. Two, recurrent feelings or disbelief, recurrent feelings of disbelief, disbelief or inability to accept the death. Three, persistent feelings of being shocked, stunned, dazed, or emotionally numb since the death. So again, these are normal in the beginning, but if we're two years out, and the person is still shocked and stunned and numb, then we're looking at a potential complicated grief label. Four, recurrent feelings of anger or bitterness since the death. And again, recurrent, persistent, you know, intense. It's it would be normal to be bitter or angry two years later, potentially, but you know, that it's there all the time. Five, persistent difficulty trusting or caring about other people. 6 frequently experiencing pain or other symptoms physical symptoms that are that the per, you know the person has died 7 experiencing intense emotional or physiological reactivity to the memories of the person who died so you're driving down the road something reminds you of the person boom you just have intense emotional or and or you know uh, physiological symptoms as a result of that, like you can't breathe or and in just intense crying, that kind of thing. Again, we're, we're talking past six months, totally normal at, at three months. Uh, if it's happening much later than that, then we're looking at potentially complicated grief. And the last one, A, is change in behavior due to excessive avoidance or the, or the opposite, excessive proximity seeking. So this is uh, when people either completely avoid The loss, or they completely try to, you know, get close to the person who died, like they're going to the cemetery every day, and thinking about that person every day. Again, this is two, you know, two years down the line, or, you know, I think past six months. And D is the duration of symptoms and impairment is at least one month. And E is the symptoms are causing clinically significant distress or impairment. So, you know, uh, what this is, is it's it's labeling of like, look, if someone past six months is still experiencing persistent and intense difficulties that are normal right after the loss, but not so common when we're looking at, uh, you know, past six months, I, I forget the research exactly, but for the various different models of or different proposals of the criteria for complicated grief or prolonged grief, when they actually study people who are grieving, something like ten five to ten percent meet the criteria. Which sounds about right, right? That for most people, ninety to ninety five percent of people, when they experience a loss, they will have all the feelings, but it will it'll slowly attenuate over time. Such that a year, two years down the road, you know, they're functioning pretty well. They might cry every now and then, but their life isn't being held up by the grief. But for about 5 to 10% of people, a year down the line, two years, three years down the line, they're still experiencing intense emotionality about the loss. And for these people, we could call them as experiencing complicated grief. It's not their fault. There's usually something going on there. And what it means is that we need to understand grief. We need to understand, as clinicians, we need to understand normal grief, and we need to understand complicated grief, and we need to understand how to treat it. But first, we need to understand the dual process model, which I promised I'd get into. And I've talked about this many times before, but the dual process model of grief. So backing up, all of you have heard of the five stages of grief. Right? Everyone's heard of that. You got denial, and then there's like anger in there somewhere. There's bargaining, and then there's – let's see – acceptances at the end. And ang- – did I say anger? <laughs> I don't know. Depressions in there somewhere. Anyway, the five the five stages of grief are not supported by empirical observation, meaning that it's, it's BS. Now, some people follow the five stages of grief. Okay. But not it, – it is – anything, it's not universal. So when we actually study people who are grieving, we find empirically that there is an oscillation between two modes, between a grieving mode and a rebuilding mode. There's various different terms for this, but these are my words. So people will grieve, meaning that they will feel the feelings, they'll ruminate, They'll get angry, they'll feel guilty, they'll cry, they'll want to talk about it, they'll um, be lost in their emotions. And then they will oscillate between that and rebuilding. They will try not to think about it or they won't be thinking about it. They will they're capable of experiencing joy in this moment. Uh, they're not numb, exactly. They're just rebuilding. They're meaning-making. You know, they're, they're looking back and, and they're looking forward and they're building new relationships and they're moving on with their life. Okay, so people oscillate between these two modes. And getting back to my friend in high school, for the year after the death, she was in the rebuilding mode that for whatever reason, her body needed to take a year off from grieving and build her life. Then, after that year, she went to the grieving mode. And then, as time went on, she vacillated between grieving and rebuilding over time. Now, not everyone does that because there are no stages here. Some people will grieve for a year and then rebuild for a year. Other people will grieve for five minutes and rebuild for ten minutes and then grieve for a day and then rebuild for ten minutes and then grieve For a month, and then rebuild for a day, you know, there's, it it all just goes back and forth. And the key is, seemingly, that everyone has a natural oscillation between these two modes, that their body and mind needs to do. And when they're left to their own devices and supported, as they vacillate and oscillate between these two modes, then optimally, what will happen that's the optimal situation and and the and the outcome of that is they will recover from their grief quickly how fast is quickly well it depends on how difficult the loss was if it's the loss of a very close person or a very uh, close relationship then it might take a long time but it goes as fast as it ever could go which you know might be 3 to 6 months or something when someone is prevented from oscillating between these two modes naturally then you are at risk of developing complica- complicated grief so if someone for example is stigmatized for grief for feeling the grief then they might try not to grieve and might force themselves into the rebuilding mode and what happens is all those natural grieving emotions and feelings and thoughts and memories and behaviors and ceremonies and conversations get suppressed and the psyche does not heal. Or the opposite. The person is forced to grieve and is not allowed to oscillate naturally to rebuilding, which is to make meaning and move on and build a life outside of that lost and attach to new people and forget about for a bit of time. Okay. So with the Freudian grief work, the problem here is that for a lot of people, they either interpreted it incorrectly or correctly, to mean that when a client isn't in the grieving process, we must force them to do that. But remember, according to research, People have a natural oscillation between grieving and rebuilding, and if a therapist forces someone to grieve, you are at risk of causing a problem to that person, and thus the person will develop complicated or prolonged grief. What society tends to do is society tends to stigmatize the grieving process. Oh, it's been... It's been four months. I mean, you're still crying about it. Move, you got to. I mean, I've literally had clients who said that after a week, they feel like something's wrong with them. Or they got dumped, and a month and a half later, they're still thinking about the person. I'm like, well, what did you expect? <laughs> if all the love songs and all the rom-coms and – most of every piece of art we create whether movies tv paintings songs has to do with falling in love it must mean that relationships mean a lot to us and when we don't have them it it means a lot to us we we want we want and need relationships badly so much so that arguably every single piece of art is related to that longing and that trying to be with other people and thus when we lose people it, whether it's death or by divorce, we are, you know, torn apart. So it takes a long time. And this is what we call disenfranchised grief. This is the, the, you know, the clinical research topic, literature topic, disenfranchised grief. The idea that uh, when someone is legitimately grieving from a loss – as a society, we will tend to disenfranchise that person from their grief by giving them the message that there's something wrong with them. Oh, you know, yeah, you know, just buy another dog. Or, that's eh, it's just a fish, you know. Or, oh, what, you know, like you have a miscarriage. Oh, well, you know, you were only pregnant for three months. These kinds of things. It's just awful. Now, if it isn't a big deal to you, whatever the loss is, okay, but for the love of God, people do not define other people's losses for them. And there are so many different messages in society that define our losses. You could absolutely pull people and find that there's a hierarchy of losses, right? Death of a spouse, worst thing ever. Death of a kid, maybe even worse. And then far down the line would be like death of a celebrity or this kind of thing. But, We can't know that. Everyone's experience of loss is different. For some people, loss of a spouse might actually be uh, not that difficult. If you have a spouse who is suffering from ongoing terminal cancer and you grieve with them while they're dying and then they pass on, you might actually feel very happy for them that the suffering is over you, and you might be relieved for yourself that you don't have to take care of them anymore. <laughs> and you're sad that they're gone, of course, but under the circumstances, you had a good life. I mean, so everyone experiences loss differently. Whereas, uh, you know, some other kind of loss, like you get fired from your job suddenly, or Yet you're a kid and your parents get a job in another town and you move away from your hometown, you might experience that loss for the rest of your life because it was so difficult. So there's, there's no way to determine which loss is more important than the others. Now, there are general things you can say, right? Loss of a child, loss of a spouse is probably for a lot of people more intense than losing a goldfish, for example. But there's no way to know, and research shows that. It's such an open ended experience. And the more I looked into grief, the more I realized that grief and, uh, you know, the way we should see grief should be the way we see life. We don't see life as something that is universal. We don't see life as something that is the same for everyone. Well, it's the same with grief because grief is such a part of life. I often say that the older you get, it's just an accumulation of losses and grief by the time you're 70 years old you have lost so many things and you're grieving all of them so it, life is grief life the passage of time is the acclimate, you know the the acquisition of things to grieve about and we should not be disenfranchising anybody but we do And we should not be pathologizing people as they oscillate in whatever way their body needs to between these two states. It's it's really a problem. And people – and I have a whole presentation on this that I won't bother you with. But there are famous cases of people being convicted to prison because they did not exhibit what society thought should have been the right amount of grief after a loss. And the whole, the you know, a dingo ate my baby, which a lot of people laugh at uh, because of Seinfeld, is actually a really tragic story about a mother who literally watched as a dingo ate her baby. Took You know, a dingo took her baby away into the brush in Australia and ate her baby. And she was accused of murdering the baby and sent to prison for a long time. Now, I know I'm going to get... Uh, it, it it was basically like the OJ Simpson trial of the of Australia in the seventies, I believe. And I'm gonna get an email from some Australian saying, "No, you don't understand. She did kill. She did. You know, she did kill her 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 kid. You know, I don't know. There, the courts uh, sent her to jail, and then the courts exonerated her and said that she, she that she, due to you know given the evidence, she didn't didn't seem like she killed her her child. But The, regardless of whether or not you believe she's guilty or not, the problem in that story is that uh, uh, days after, weeks after the baby is gone, she is being, uh, you know, all these microphones and television cameras are thrust in her face and she's, she has a kind of blank look on her face as she's trying to get to the courthouse or whatever, or just get to her job, whatever she's doing. And everyone in the media was just like, look at her face. She looks so dead. Or they might get a glimpse of her smiling with her other kids. How could a mother that lost a baby be smiling? And a lot of the jury members who convicted her of the the crime falsely said that a lot of the evidence that they listened to to convince them that she was guilty was not any kind of actual evidence of her killing the baby, of which there was basically none, but was the evidence put forth by the prosecution and by the press that she wasn't exhibiting constant crying. So we have this idea of like, well, and and the father, by the way, was never implicated. (laughs) You know, the father, no one pointed a camera at the father and said like, where's his tears? Because, you know, it's all about the mother, right? Anyway, point is, is that we have as a society a and and the, the way i put it is like what because what, at first i was like well maybe the idea is that society says you're supposed to cry you're supposed to have a lot of emotions after a loss and if you don't then it means you didn't really care but then i started hearing all these stories about how people were pathologized for grieving too long and sometimes grieving too long meant 3 weeks that if you're still crying after 3 weeks there's something wrong with you so what i determined was there you're you're at no matter how long or short you are grieving for many people it is too long and too short <laughs> you're either dwelling on it and or you're moving on too fast and you're a cold person so anyway The point is is that the body knows, and if it's left to its own devices, it will oscillate naturally between grieving and rebuilding, and society and internalized oppression will uh, throw a wrench in that process. And for many people, when a wrench is thrown in the process, they develop complicated grief, and they need us as clinicians to help determine what that wrench is so we can pull it out such that the body and their, you know, their mind can uh, believe in their own oscillating, grieving, rebuilding process. And so a lot of therapy for grief therapy doesn't involve forcing people to grieve. It involves helping the client to be better at at intuiting what they need, and then you as a therapist supporting that, and also trying to intuit yourself as a therapist where they are and Trying to figure out, are there any barriers to the grieving process? So this this model of grief uh, I teach to students, and there's much more involved in it. But uh, what's happening in my profession is that many, many people are still being taught grief work, which goes back to Freud, which has a lot of genius to it, but also some problems, right, because it forces people to grieve when they don't want to sometimes – so there's that problem. Um, and a lot of people are being taught ideas of what's pathological grief. That is, if you're grieving uh, for longer than a few months, there's something wrong with you. So clinicians are believing that because that's in our culture. Another thing that clinicians are learning is the five stages of grief, which is not supported. I, I know clinicians who believe the five stages of grief are real. And so because of this um, problem, And because clinicians aren't being trained and aren't being taught the empirical science around grief, what is happening is uh, I can't remember the exact statistics. It's not in front of me, but something like most people, or I don't know, a a good percentage of people who go to therapy for grief are actually being harmed. That uh, whenever you have a treatment protocol, say it's, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy for depression, You're always going to have a percentage of people who who improve. You're going to have a percentage of people who stay the same. And you're going to have a a percentage of people actually get worse. So you know how you say, well, you know, CBT is evidence-based for depression. Well, what that means is odds are the person is going to either stay the same or get better if you, you know, use CBT for someone that's depressed. But there's a chance, it's usually around 5%, that the person will actually get worse because of CBT. And you think, you say to yourself, well, how do you know that? Well, you have control groups. It's it's all very you know, buttoned up. But the point is, is that any treatment protocol, it always, almost is in psychology in particular, almost always has a percentage of people who actually get worse. And with grief therapy, is the same. So someone comes to therapy and there's a percentage of people that get worse. The problem is, the percentage of people who get worse from grief therapy, I can't remember the exact stat, but it's something like 40%, 30, 30 to 40%. So that means you have like, like, I don't know, 20% that get better. Don't quote me on this. It's, it's something along these lines. It's like 20% get better, uh, 40% stay the same, and 40% get worse. <laughs> so, so I can't remember the exact stats, but I remember concluding in my book that if you are grieving you're better off not going to therapy because therapists are so bad at treating grief that uh, the one of the best things you could hope for is that they don't that the therapist doesn't help you at all but there's a good chance that the therapist is going to hurt you either by forcing you to grieve or pathologizing your grief or some other problem that they'll have <laughs> or not even really paying attention to your grief. That's another problem that a lot of therapists do. It's just like, let's talk about your automatic thoughts. (laughs) It's like, uh, there's a much bigger picture here. You know, know, they don't understand post-traumatic growth. They don't understand meaning-making. They don't understand post-traumatic stress disorder when it comes to loss and all these things. Anyway, so, uh, yeah. (laughs) One of the biggest, like scandals I think in my industry is how terrible according to research we are at treating grief as a whole as a whole profession psychologists social workers marriage and family therapists as a whole we are we are harming the our clients as a whole imagine if cancer treatment was had a similar outcome that if you had cancer you were better off not going to the not going to a physician not going not getting any medical treatment because medical treatment was more likely it, it's this is like going back 200 years ago when they used to bleed people all the time right leeches and bleedings someone is sick and and so you bleed them and then they they have so very little blood in their system that they're very fatigued and their immune system is out of whack, and their organs are shutting down, well, what do you do? Well, you bleed them more. So you were better off at that time not going to the doctor than going to the doctor. If you were sick, you should avoid the professional that's supposed to help you because of how uh, how terrible the treatments were for it. <laughs> Well, that's how we are right now about grief therapy. Now, maybe things have changed since the research have come. I don't think so, though, because graduate schools are still not including grief therapy enough. I mean, some of them, you know, they'll have a class, but you need more than that. You need a lot of supervision. It's a very complicated thing. Anyway, so let's get into the emails. (laughs) An hour and 20 minutes into this thing. All right. Anonymous Upper Tier Patron says, I am a soldier stationed overseas, and recently, seven other soldiers stationed here were killed during a mission. I didn't know them very well, though I would often make small talk with them at a bar. I felt very sad and started crying after learning about their deaths. Is it normal to have such an intense emotional reaction after hearing about the passing of people you barely knew? End of email. Yes, it's completely normal. Uh, People ridicule others for this. I don't know why. Like when famous people die, like David Bowie, Princess Diana, um, they'll they'll die and people will cry and post stuff on the Internet and other people will ridicule them. I just don't understand. It's like people having feelings. Why do you want to ridicule anyone? Anyway, but, you know, these seven soldiers that died were not just famous people. You knew them. (laughs) These were seven of your, you know, at least coworkers. You could consider them. That's a tragedy. And that not only did you know them, and of course you would have feelings about that, but it's also a tragedy. It just, just, I want to cry. I don't even know these seven people. I've never met these seven people, and I want to cry about it because it's just such a tragedy to think about. Seven soldiers dying in the same mission. That's just, it's so sad. (laughs) You just think about those young lives being cut short and their spouses and kids and their families and their friends and all those mourning people. It's very sad. The other thing is, is to have seven soldiers that you knew die kind of makes you think, wait, could that be me? Could that be my closer friends that I work with? So I, I imagine that it's, it'd be inhuman not to have, Intense emotional reactions from from that loss, so yeah, totally normal. I have those feelings so i'm um, I'm looking at the rest of the emails here. <laughs> I got to one email it's going to take me too long, so i'm gonna uh, make another episode, a continuation of this one in which I read all the the emails, so that does it for that episode in which I meant to answer emails, but mainly talked about theory. Until next time, take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.